Hi, this is Beth AQ, and this is the podcast of The Glass House, a weekly radio show that airs on Triple R each Wednesday. The Glass House is a space for spoken word artists, poets, sound makers, audio storytellers, emerging cultural leaders, thinkers, writers, and anyone who celebrates story as a means of self-expression, self-representation, and community building. I hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via Twitter at BethanyAQ or the Triple R website. Going to bed one night or another with fear or pain or loss or disappointment. And yet each of us has awakened and arisen. There is the nobleness of the human spirit. Despite it all, black and white, Asian, Spanish, Native American, pretty, plain, thin, Fat, vowed or celibate, we Glass House for another Wednesday. My name is Beth AQ. Big, big thank you as always to the wonderful Mel Cranenberg for the last hour of backstory. I loved listening to those students' stories from 100 Story Building. If you did miss it, you can always listen back on the Triple R website at rrr.org.au or wherever you get your podcasts from. This show is now also available on podcast, which is very exciting if that's the way you choose to listen. I begin by acknowledging that a broadcast on the unceded stolen lands of the Kulin Nation. I acknowledge and honour the first creators and storytellers of this land and pay my respects to the elders past, present and emerging, always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Coming up on the program today, I'm very excited. As always, so many great guests that I get the bloody privilege of chatting to. Uh, in about 10 minutes, I'll be joined on the line by award-winning Noongar writer and editor Kim Scott. I was lucky enough to have a chat with him last year off the back of his VPLA win for Taboo. But today he'll be joining me to talk about Westerly Magazine's special online issue, Ancestors' Words, which showcases new Aboriginal writing from WA. It did come out towards the end of last year, but they've just released a podcast to accompany it, which features the readings of some of the contributors. Uh, the project has used storytelling to transform letters written by each writer's Noongar descendants um, that have been kept within the Aboriginal Affairs section of the State Archives. It's a really interesting project and I'm really excited to chat to Kim about that. It is co-edited by Alfie Shiyosaki. A little bit later on in the program, I'll be joined by writer and editor Elizabeth Flux to talk about her most recent essay in Kill Your Darlings called Grave Concerns. 
with home ownership a distant fantasy for many Australians. The essay asks if living in a cemetery could be an unorthodox solution. It challenges our ideas of land and property and reminds us that money doesn't only divide us in life. A really excellent essay from an excellent writer. I'm sure you might be familiar with um, Liz, a bit of a regular on these airwaves. Apart from that, a bunch of music for you. To kick things off, we're going to take something from Stormzy. This one is bossy. Woo! <sighs> That's right. Triple R. Came out. A multi-award winning Noongar author from Western Australia and alongside Alfie Shiazaki, he has co-edited the recent online special issue for Westerly Lit Journal called Ancestors Words. Alongside this issue is a podcast that includes readings from the contributors and in this issue each writer has used storytelling to transform archival records into original Noongar stories. Joining me on the line now to talk all about it, I have co-editor Kim Scott. Thank you so much for your time this afternoon. Oh, good of you to be interested. Ah, Always. Um, Kim, to start, how did this project Ancestors Words uh, come about? Uh, uh, this this uh, creative writing, this fiction in Westerly comes out of a, a larger Australian Research Council project, uh, Ancestors' Words, which is which just just concluding now was about um, accessing and sharing with family stroke community letters written to the Aboriginal Affairs Department between 1860 and 1960, I think. And the key point is it's letters written by Aboriginal people, mainly Noongars in this particular sample. And, um, yeah, so accessing them, finding them, and then sharing them uh, at community meetings and processing some of the hurt and trauma that's often in there and reshaping the language, which is... Some of the final products of that is what what are in this uh, edition of Westerly. Mm. So creative, creative responses to that stuff. Like um, I hope I, you, you'll interrupt me when you. Need of course, to, yeah. Okay. Um, stuff like uh, Daryl Kickett writes a piece because he's read he's read letters written by his ancestor to uh, Sir John Forrest. Uh, an early premier of WA, who was also one of the explorers. And Daryl's ancestor, Billy Nungali Kicket, was a guide on that expedition. And Daryl and the others of us read letters that that guide, Billy Kicket, had written to the premier some decades after they'd gone on the expedition together, just reminding him of their friendship and perhaps he could do with a little bit of help Mm. Um, so Daryl's imagined himself into something of that situation and has written creatively fiction, imagining and exploring some of the gaps but it's an interesting piece it's also like an essay at times sort of contextualising what was going on there and also his own response to it Kim, I'm interested in um, I suppose the process of I mean first accessing these archives and then I suppose, pairing up, um, you know, people with the the words of their um, descendants. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? 
Yeah, um, look, that's a, I was uh, only on the advisory uh, group for this project. I'm not good on the early details of it, but people like uh, Anna Habeck, Tiffany Shalom, Elfie Shiyasaki were helping uh, Noongar people access the archives and they would have quite a database already. And then there's others in the group, partly in the advisory group, but also, again, led by Daryl Kicken, um, finding the right people to connect these letters to and leading the sort of sometimes really delicate and sensitive process of looking at that, at some of those letters again and thinking about the historical circumstances and the personal circumstances of people there. So that had gone on, the project was going on for three years, it was in the latter part of it, that we thought um, we'd have a go at doing little writing workshops as an extension of that, processing the material, processing our responses to them, uh, yarning about that, and then working out how to how to shape them for others to read. Mm. Yeah, can you tell us a little bit about um, that process of what it was like to work with, um, you know, these contributors, these descendants to workshop their stories? Well, I, I, I feel, I felt kind of honoured to tell you the truth. Very much honoured and privileged. They're really important conversations you're having. Um, and there was probably because we knew one another and had been working together, or most of us did, there was a good element of trust there. There was people I'd regard as Noongar people of status, like Daryl, um, Jeannie Morrison, who writes a wonderful gendered piece in there. Those people leading us. So, yeah, there was trust. There was serious conversations about history and then putting individual family members into that historical context and talking some of the hurt and often this stuff is surrounded with uh, polemical discourse and anger and and hurt and wanting to get some sort of revenge perhaps that's i'm just speaking for myself there when i deal with the archives Mm. but it's what i'm saying is it's, it's often quite sensitive and then you ask as often in sort of creative writing workshops, you ask people to open themselves a little bit more and be vulnerable in that context. Yeah, make, that's what make, made it feel really important and um, be something of an honour. Um, people making themselves vulnerable over uh, sensitive memories and and wanting to show respect and be strong in that historical context. Mm. Um, some of them, and so you can still see in some of the pieces, I'm thinking of one by Irma Woods, um, she chose to keep some of that process open in the text she's delivered to us. So there's a lot of uh, punning, sort of stream of consciousness in there, and even crossed out sections. And I think that works really well. Um, Daryl has samples from some of the the archives and and has a photo of a headstone that John Forrest um, erected for Billy Kickett, his guide, of which John Forrest's name, I think, is even larger than his guide's, which is 
interesting all in itself. Um, yeah, so those sort of things made it, um, if I'm not rambling too much, no. that made it the diversity that's there, the sort of processes, the emotional quotient and the um, the intellectual sparring that was going on, if you like, with with the archives. Sort of sometimes there's bits of deconstruction, you're sort of taking them apart and then putting them back together, some of those words, in a way that feels more appropriate. Mm. Um, so the reading experience for them without getting ambushed and hijacked into just uh, rage. <laughs> mm. Yeah, it's it seems like this very important um, recontextualization of these archival records with, uh, I suppose, current and Noongar knowledge. How important uh, do you think it is to kind of be able to, to use these archives and um, reshape like, some of the narratives? Yeah. I look. I, I, uh, I look. I work as a fiction writer, so I've, I've done the very same thing. So I, I naturally think it is important. I think it's important to. So these are the the archives as contain the language of our shared history, but it's a very mm. limited perspective that you get mm. there, and it can make it really quite hostile and hurtful at times. Um, but no one, I don't think, wants to be retreating from that experience. But you do want to uh, reshape and offer more, bring your own voice and the voice of ancestors and family to the archives and add to what's there and offer different perspectives and deconstruct often, point out the, uh, the arrogance and ignorance that's often there in the archives. And then when you see your own family, family's sort of humble contribution to the archives and they're sometimes relatively, in, often relatively inexperienced voices there, you want to add your own voice to theirs. So that, it's, look, it's, it's, I don't like using phrases like this that much, but it's, it's probably really important acts of decolonisation, I think, mm. that's going on. You know, the deconstructing, the tearing apart, and then re rebuilding and reshaping, so you can so we can speak about um, our history and our perspectives on history uh, more adequately. So it's an ongoing process. These samples in this edition of Westley, with a lovely artwork. Uh, by an, another Noongar, Christopher Peace, mm. um, there, are all part of that sort of process, I think, mm. that continues. If you have just joined us, uh, we are talking to multi-award winner, Noongar writer and editor Kim Scott, who has co-edited uh, this special issue for Westerly called Ancestors' Words. Um, Kim, these stories are also featured in a podcast I'm interested in, um, for you, why audio storytelling is an important extension of this project. Uh, look, for me, I'm glad you said for you. Um, I don't have to be an expert. I just like listening to mm. people's voices. Again, it gives you more uh, interpretive material. It, it brings more to the text, you know, not only the quality of the, of people's voices, but also the way they choose to phrase, it's like musical, you know, you can phrase stuff differently, whatever the 
the text is. So I think that adds a real lot to it. Um, and it brings more, in circumstances like this too, it brings more Noongar people to the cultural exchange cusp, if I can put it like that. And, and it's also appropriate and befits, I think, the sort of, to hear a voice of a solo reader, it fits in with the the intimacy that's so much part of reading and writing, I think. Mm. Uh, I know I, I I think it's similar. I use audio books quite a lot when I'm driving and I like that process of listening and then going back to the text and seeing what the similarities and differences are in those two ways of offering mm. um, the words. So I think it's I think it's a great little addition. A lot of journals do it these days. Hey, I think international journals like the New Yorker seem to do it. Um, so that's another reason. Join in with the way everyone's doing it mm. <laughs> around the world. Yeah, um, I've yeah. absolutely loved it. Just as another way to yeah access this um, material and yeah hear the voices behind the words. Um, I was interested when I was listening to the podcast that. For some of the contributors, they've, you know, learned a great deal about their family through reading these archives, through um, reading these letters. It almost, for some, perhaps seemed like a a new opening, uh, a new starting off point to kind of dig deeper into these archives. Where do you kind of see um, this project going or, or you know, anything to do with these archives? Do you see a future um, with that? Uh, look, I, th- I, I think as I've already indicated, I think... Um, shaping and, and nurturing, what's the word I'm looking for? You know, encounters between, encounters in the archives with the, the sort of text and the sort of discourse that's there and Aboriginal people particularly, I think is really profitable for that sort of decolonisation sort of work. Uh, and it's very rich and often perhaps too rich in its hostility for many, many of us. And the the business of sharing and debriefing or whatever, talking about and playing with and reshaping those encounters and what you find there, I think it's extremely um, productive work. I think there's a lot of healing can come out of it. And certainly it's very, it's often very provocative um, in the nuances and the complexities and the subtleties that you, that you start to, to find there, even in that context of, of a, quite a lot of hostility, mm. just in the, in the brutal way sometimes one's own ancestors are responded to and their writings are responded to. So you see all the the marginal notes and, and all that sort of thing. So there's yeah, I think it's um I think it's really worthwhile to, to do workshops of this kind. There might not need to be creative writing workshops but uh generating images out of them or just talk you know, just talking, debriefing, yarning. Um, is, is, I, 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 you know, a lot of my, my work is of this nature and I know a lot of visual artists work like this and film workers. 
Um, so yeah, I think it, it, I think it can be just so productive. But I think that healing part of it and coming to understand our histories and meet with our ancestors, which is also what, and help them out. You're doing all those sort of things. So yeah, I'd like I'd like to see. Uh, I'd like to see more of it or even some infrastructure created to help it happen more often. Mm. Kim, it's been um, a real privilege to, yeah, to read these stories. I'm, I'm wondering if in the process of um, kind of deconstructing these archives and working with these writers, if there was anything, uh, if there were any big um, learnings for you? Uh, yeah, well, there, there was in... in individual moments, uh, the business of just getting to know workshop participants and their families better through this process. But I think it, mainly it just reaffirmed that, um, or confirmed, that awareness of the, the, uh, the creative fertility of these dwelling in these sort of encounters and sharing them in small trusting groups. I think that was that was a major uh, takeaway from it. I urge everybody to uh, to jump online and uh, have a read through Ancestors' Words. You can also listen to the podcast. Uh, you can check it out through Westerly's uh, website. Kim Scott, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for your time this afternoon. It's lovely. You're a smooth-talking woman. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Uh, you're on Triple R right now. We're going to take something from Moses Sumney. This one is Cut Me. You're on Triple R. Triple R. You're listening to Triple R, Rainbow Chan there. And before that, we did take something from Moses Sumney, Cut Me. It is 25 minutes to 2 o'clock and you are locked into 102.7. Triple R, and I'm excited to have my next guest joining me in studio. Elizabeth Flux is no stranger to Triple R. You may have heard her on Breakfasters, dishing out some great book reviews. Um, but if you don't know her, she is an award-winning writer and editor whose fiction and non-fiction work has been widely published and anthologized. She joins us today to talk about her most recent essay published in Kill Your Darlings. It's called Grave Concerns. With home ownership, a distant fantasy for many Australians could living in a cemetery be an unorthodox solution. This essay challenges our ideas of land and property and reminds us that money doesn't only divide us in life. Thank you so much for coming in. Thanks for having me here. It's always a joy to have you in. Um, you know, it's no surprise for so many people in this country that, you know, the classic Australian dream of owning a home is unfortunately uh, quite unrealistic for a lot of people. Um, what first got you thinking about cemeteries as a potential area to house the living? So there's kind of two things. I've always been interested in cemeteries and I've always felt like I'm not allowed to be interested in cemeteries because that's, you know, for later. Um, and the second thing is I was just coincidentally driving past the Melbourne General Cemetery and it said limited release of exclusive graves. And I was like, exclusive graves? Like, what does that mean? And at the same time, I was going through some some bad times with rentals and I just, the, the two things came together in one moment. I was like, I wonder, could you live in a graveyard like is that possible and would it be more economically viable so I decided to sort of start digging for lack of a better word 
Um, so yeah, you've obviously paid a particular attention to the Melbourne Cemetery. I know in the essay you talk about um, taking a, a tour there. What was that like? What did you learn? Uh, so that was wonderful, actually. They were very generous with their time and responses, despite um, my somewhat weird qu- queries coming in. Um, two went for several hours, actually, on a rainy day, kind of like today. And we went all through and I learned about the history of the cemetery whilst also trying to throw in a few like, oh, this is an interesting grave. Tell me more about this person. Could I live here um, also? <laughs> so, um, yeah, it was good. Um, it was only awkward when I made it awkward with my strange questions. But it was interesting because there's just so much history that it pushed my original question beyond is this somewhere I could live to what are cemeteries actually saying about us as a society and like why do we still have them? Mm. I mean, yeah, exactly that. What what do you, what did you learn? Like, what do you feel like walking around, you know, Melbourne Cemetery in particular? What do you think it it's telling us about, you know, the way that we live and you know how we respect the dead? Well, it's very complicated because I I love graveyards, as I've said, and I really enjoy the stories that headstones can tell us because they're often just for a lot of people that's all that's left of their life. So you hear what they're like as a person from the way that they're buried, that kind of thing. But it's also a great privilege to be buried and especially now it's quite expensive and it's not it's not necessarily worse for the environment than cremation but it is still not great so there's only about in the Melbourne General Cemetery there's about 70 to 80 burials a year now compared to hundreds previously and it's interesting the stories you can see there because how much space you're allowed to take up in a spot is how much money you have or how much fame you had and there's people who are like buried three deep, there's the pauper's graves, and you can actually see the stratifications of society within a graveyard. It's a microcosm, but it's also a privileged microcosm to a degree because not everyone can end up in a graveyard, not that everyone would want to. So it's it's complex and I don't know, it's very interesting. There's a lot to dig into. I'm mm. not trying to do the puns. I'm so sorry. <laughs> it's just too easy. Yeah, but it just, yeah. Um. Yeah, I mean, I feel like you, you've said some really like just one line of sentences in this essay that have just really stayed with me, like um, graveyards, weird as it sounds, are still businesses. Mm. Can you tell us a little bit about, I suppose, how this has kind of informed your thinking? I guess I always thought of, like, before I knew about the realities of graveyards, I always just sort of thought, if you die and you want to be buried, you can. Like, you can just go to your church or whatnot and they'll just bury you in the back. I guess I had a very quaint British heartbeat view of things but actually it's there's a lot of paperwork you have to pay a lot of money and it's and it's it is a business like you say there's um like councils look after certain degrees of it the government owns the land but cemeteries can go bankrupt they can run out of money and then what happens then I don't know if there's been a recent example of how that's gone and I touched in on it in the essay but in the 1800s the the cemetery where Queen Vic Markets was like they decided to the Queen Victoria markets there instead and so everyone who's buried there tough luck you're still buried there but your gravestones are gone it's just Mm. yeah yeah what happens to them yeah well they're still there almost if if you're not famous enough to be reinterred you're still there Mm. um you you know you kind of explore this you know ideas of land ownership and like what it actually means to purchase um, a burial plot I was you know interested and surprised just because I had no idea um that you said it costs between like five thousand to fifteen thousand dollars for a burial plot in Melbourne um, Cemetery. Can you can you tell us a little bit more about what you learned about kind of the ownership of the burial plot after purchase? So, 
in Melbourne General Cemetery, you are buried in perpetuity, which is not the case in all cemeteries. So that means that once you're buried, your body stays there. They're not going to dig you up in 25, 50, 100 years and bury someone else there, which is the case in some cemeteries. Um, the way... So I'm just trying to think how it works. So cremations are different. So there are, depending on when you were cremated and your memorial is put in in Melbourne General Cemetery, sometimes it's in perpetuity, sometimes it's 25 years, sometimes it's 50 years. But yeah, I don't know. Hmm. Um, You know, you talk to your kind of lawyer friends who kind of, uh, it kind of debunks these these kind of questions that you had about, um, yeah, about ownership and in perpetuity. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, so I was surprised um, when I got in touch with her, first of all, how willing she was to answer my questions, <laughs> but also that I just assumed if you bought a plot of land, like you'd, you'd own that plot, like you'd go, okay, that one, that's the one I'll have. But actually, it's you're getting the promise to be buried there. You're not necessarily choosing a specific spot, like in some cemeteries you can, and that's why the price goes up sometimes, because there is like a premium on different locations. But you're actually just be- purchasing the right to be buried somewhere, in the cemetery so that sort of puts paid to building a house or something on that spot mm. I suppose you know a bit of a spoiler um, unfortunately it isn't something that you're able to do can you tell us a little bit about I suppose what you learned um, in terms of not actually being able to you know put a tiny house um, on you know burial site or something like that so the cemetery does have things in place to like they wouldn't let you you have to put a permit in to build something on on the land so they probably wouldn't let you build like you could potentially fight it but I don't think it would happen Um, arguably you could possibly fight to have a bunker because that wouldn't affect the aesthetics of the land but um, I wasn't game to (laughs) to go more into that yeah (laughs) Um, you know this essay I think poses some like really interesting questions about you know particularly the Melbourne Cemetery I feel like I, I you know I'm past it all the time on the tram and just thinking about how it is a finite space and it's eventually going to fill up. Do you have any, I I don't know, did you have any, um, I suppose, moments where you learnt about what you think the future of this kind of, um, I suppose, industry could look like or will look like? Surely it's not sustainable because we only have so much land and we only have so much land that is close enough that people want to visit. And part of the reason of cemeteries is you want to have a memorial for your loved one or yourself and loved ones want to visit it for X amount of time. So even having ones further and further away, it's not going to have the same impact. So we are going to run our land. And it's also an important question, like, is it fair to give land to the dead that the living could be using? So there's an ethical question in there too, like should we be having cemeteries of this nature, and I've I've done some more research um, for subsequent articles about alternative graveyards and burial options, which actually are really quite interesting and very much veer away from the traditional view of graveyards. But it depends on what we want graveyards to be and what they we want them to say. And I think we as a society need to have a discussion really about what we want for people after death in a bigger way. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. As you said, it is, unfortunately, death is still such a taboo topic, but, you know, it's one of the certainties in life. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm interested in, oh, I've just lost my train of thought, Um, thinking about the, I suppose, the rituals behind the way that we um, remember the dead and how, you know, for a very long time, having the, you know, having a tombstone and being able to visit that was a way of, you know, I suppose, revisiting 
loved ones. But now I suppose with the internet and social media and I suppose a lot of kind of memorializing is happening online, I'm, I'm interested. Do you have any thoughts about how that kind of space will change the way that we, we remember um, loved ones past? It's fascinating because the more I looked at it, gravestones are like a social media page except and i'm sorry again for the puns they are more set in stone whereas a (laughs) memorial page can breathe and evolve over time Mm. a gravestone is just that it's a moment in time and it depends on who's choosing it like people can choose it before death or their loved one can choose it and i i heard one suggestion which is if you're getting buried without a marker you can get a like a virtual reality headstone done instead where people can choose to instead of like it can't doesn't have to literally be a headstone done in virtual reality it can be like a memorial page with photos and videos and music and that could also be a very beautiful way to do things as well which is kind of taking the two concepts and putting them together without actually having something having to occupy the physical space Mm. so yeah there's a lot there's a lot of options out there Well, you've given me a lot to think about and I think, as you said, it's something that needs to be spoken about more and more. Um, We have been chatting all about Liz Flux's new essay in Kill Your Darlings called Grave Concerns. Liz, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. Thanks for having me. It is time for me to get on out of here for another week, but I do want to say big thanks to all of my wonderful guests that joined me this afternoon. Uh, on the line earlier was Kim Scott joining from WA, an incredible Noongar writer and editor, was joining to talk all about Westerly's new online issue called Ancestors Words, which showcases new Aboriginal writing, a really incredible project, that one. And you can also check out the podcast if you head over to Westerly's website. And of course, a big thanks to Liz Flux for joining me to talk all about cemeteries and death. But hey, it's so important. And her essay is amazing. It's in Kill Your Darlings. It's called Grave Concerns. Coming up next is Johnny Topper with New and Groovy. My name is Beth AQ and I'll be back with you next Wednesday from one o'clock in the Glass House. Keep it locked. This is Beth AQ. Thanks for listening to the podcast of The Glass House, a weekly radio show that airs on Triple R each Wednesday. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via Twitter at Bethany AQ or the Triple R website, 